Wednesday, October 17th, 2012, episode number 21 of the Football Nation Today podcast with Alex Reamer on footballnation.com. Published each and every Wednesday here on FootballNation.com. And for your download and convenience in the iTunes store, please subscribe to the Football Nation Today podcast and the other shows available here at FootballNation.com, Monday Morning Huddle, the Sportscasters, etc. in the iTunes store if you have yet to do so. Of course, each and every Wednesday here in Football Nation Today, in the 24-7 news cycle, we know a litany of NFL stories are discussed. We discuss those stories too, but hopefully we give you a bit of a different angle. Hopefully we elicit a response from you folks, the listeners. We are not, we do not have to adhere to any broadcasting rights uh, here on Football Nation today. We do not have to worry about ticking off sponsors, so I like to think we give it to you from a straight-up perspective. Hopefully you as a listener appreciate that. As always, I appreciate your feedback to the show. Any thoughts on anything we've discussed, as always, feel free to leave a comment on the uh, show page on footballnation.com. If you want to talk to me one-on-one, send me an email. areamer at bu.edu is my email address. That's A-R-E-I-M-E-R at bu.edu. Follow me on Twitter if you feel so inclined, and my nonsense over there on social media. At AlexRemer1 is my Twitter name. You'll catch me tweeting about a lot of things, except snarky comments about the presidential debates. Uh, (laughs) Attention out there, all of you. You are not all comedians. In fact, very few of you are. And your snarky little ombudsman comments every second during the debates are not entertaining to me or anybody else except yourself and your inflated ego. All right, now that's out of the way. Let's talk some football. Episode 21, Football Nation Today. A big show lined up for you this week. In the first down segment, welcome on a man by the name of Chris Warner, who covers the Patriots up here in the New England area for uh, PatriotsDaily.com and BostonSportsMedia.com. BostonSportsMedia.com is a well-read sports media review site, but they also have a lot of terrific sports content, and Chris is one of the many fantastic sports contributors there. In the second out segment, biggest off-field stories of the week, two stories we're looking at. The Cleveland Browns have officially changed hands in ownership, and with that, Mike Holmgren will be out as team president. We take a look back, a brief look back at the Holmgren era as president of the Browns over these past couple of years, and also the Cleveland Browns as a whole and their futility since moving to Cleveland since 1999, and we try to look at the main reason for that futility I have a hint for you it's two letters Q and B and then also the Philadelphia Eagles in their bye week have fired defensive coordinator Juan Castillo is Andy Reid next on the chopping block we'll look at that story in the second down segment third down segment it's the big up slowdown debating stories such as Peyton Manning North Turner who is more responsible for the game that we saw Monday night the Broncos scoring 35 unanswered points in the second half is Peyton Manning back or is North Turner just more inept than ever? Uh, in other words, North Turner being North Turner. We also take a look at Pete Carroll and the Seahawks. The Seahawks are 4-2, and two, coming off a big win against the Patriots last week. Uh, but is Pete Carroll a good football coach? I have an opinion there that may surprise you. Then the fourth down segment, it's the Reamer rant. The Dallas Cowboys are 2-3. and three. But they may get back to 500 with the win over the Panthers this week. However, that does not mean that the Cowboys are back. No, no, no. Peyton Manning, I think, may very well be back. But the Cowboys are not back. In fact, the Cowboys haven't been back for well over a decade. Tell me a team that is less deserving of the coverage from the mainstream media 
than the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, that's right, you can't name one. But yet the Cowboys, if they win this Sunday, will probably lead SportsCenter. And they'll lead every other NFL show. Why? I don't know. I don't know why the country is enamored with the Cowboys. They have been worth being enamored with for over a decade. I'm fired up today. It's footballnation.com. Coming up next, my conversation with Chris Warner, in which we discuss the fact that uh, there seem to be no elite teams. Once again, the NFL, is that due to parity or mediocrity? How about the stellar play from rookie quarterbacks? Is that due to this unique rookie quarterback class? Or is it just easier to play quarterback in the league now than ever before? And we do spend some time on the 3-3 three three Patriots, but it is a very interesting story to look at, especially those of you out there, and though you exist outside of the New England area, those of you who hate Bill Belichick, uh, well, you may be a little, uh, a little giddy with some of the uh, topics Chris Warner and I discuss. I'll uh, expand slightly on those topics as well after the interview. Uh, Bill Belichick, his track record as a GM, Quite subpar, if you look at it from a particular angle. We'll talk about that story uh, later on as well. It's footballnation.com, Football Nation Today. My name is Alex Reamer. Back in a moment. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to the Football Nation Today podcast. It is our first down segment when we take a look at the biggest on-field NFL stories of the week and what a week six it was. And to help us recap week six, look forward to week seven, we welcome on Chris Warner. You can read his work on PatriotsDaily.com, which also can be found on BostonSportsMedia.com. Chris covers the Patriots and the NFL. Chris, welcome to the show. How are you? Very good, Alex. Thanks a lot for having me. No problem. Thanks for coming on. I'm going to attack with Chris Warner, PatriotsDaily.com. Read his stuff, BostonSportsMedia.com, here on Football Nation Today. Now, Chris, with the Chargers allowing the Broncos to score 35 unanswered points on them Monday night, the Ravens and Texans are the only teams in the AFC with running records. Uh, it looks as if the AFC in particular does not have a clear elite team. The, N the NFC seems to be a little more top-heavy, but is this the NFL's parody at work? Or would mediocrity be a more appropriate word to describe uh, the fact that, again, only two teams in the AFC, for example, have winning records entering Week 7? I, I think it, it has to be a combination of both. I think you are getting parity. That's but the easy it, answer, Chris. Are you prepping for the presidential <laughs> debate tonight or what? That's a cop-out, man. All right, all right. Here we go. Here we go. I think uh, the parity has come from mediocrity because the top teams are not as good as the top teams. All right, all right there we go. I think there there are still some poor teams uh, in the NFL, uh, but the poor teams have more of a chance now because the top teams are not as good. I also think um, what has happened is we are seeing more inconsistency from week to week than we've ever seen in the NFL. And I think the last few weeks with the Patriots, uh, for example, show that where you know we see a team that, that really – struggled in a lot of areas uh, this past week and that team certainly didn't look like it could you know go up 31 to 7 against the Broncos and certainly didn't look like they could score you know 35 points and a half uh, against the Bills uh, and that Bills game going back a few weeks is another great example of a team that fumbled a couple times a team that looked like it was in a lot of trouble uh, and then suddenly you have a blowout midway through the fourth quarter so it's uh, it's that type of league where if you look at a team uh, at one week, you know, the Giants, I think, are, are going to be a great yep. example. I don't know anybody who expected them to do what they did to, to San Francisco. And San Francisco had looked very strong. 
So, you know, who knows what they're going to do next week. If, that's, if they're consistent, then they are by far the best team in the league. But uh, that inconsistency has bitten everybody one time or another this season. Yeah, that leads me to the question about the Giants, Chris. Of course, they crushed San Francisco at San Francisco last week, and they beat him by running the football. Ahmad Bradshaw had his biggest game of the year. Uh, the Giants were physical as well. And I look at the Giants, Chris, and to me they really seem to be a complete football team because they can out-physical you as they did to San Francisco this past week. But if Eli Manning has to throw the ball 35 times a game and win it on his own in the second half, he's shown he's capable of doing that too. So to me, Chris, when the Giants are at their best, they can beat you in a variety of ways, which to me, if I had to pick right now entering Week 7, would make them the best team in the NFL. Yeah, it's hard to, you know, it, it, I think before this past week, we'd say San Francisco. Houston, though. Or you could say put, Houston, too, before this week. Houston, very strong. But, you know, again, a, a, a couple of games where they, they sort of can't get out of their own way. Uh, now, I would have said Baltimore a couple of weeks ago. Now, with the injuries, uh, you know, having a, a rough game, I guess it was against the Browns a, a little while ago. It's, there are a lot of things going on, you know, to different teams throughout the league where we haven't seen uh, – you know, strength, really, except from the Giants recently, um, for many one team. So, yeah, I, I agree. I, I don't really see any glaring weaknesses on that Giants team. I think, you know, if they're going to beat them, they're not going to play their best. But then again, to go back to your original point, Chris, how do you explain a lapse like they had two weeks ago against Cleveland where they get down 14 to nothing? I think it's, it's just a matter of, you know, some teams being ready to play, some teams coming out fired up. Um, I think Cleveland's consistently gets underestimated, and that's to their advantage. They have looked good, uh, decent, you know, better than better than awful at some point. Um, but uh, I, I think that's also, you can say it's the mark of a, of a strong team that can come back from that and, and uh, get the win, something that the Patriots, you know, certainly couldn't do. I mentioned the Ravens earlier, Chris. Uh, with Ladarius Webb and Ray Lewis now out for the season, um, do the Ravens fall back a bit in the AFC North? Is that now Pittsburgh's or Cincinnati's division to lose? I think the Ravens can can still do some good things. Um, you know, Ray Lewis is is an amazing player to do what he's doing at his age. Uh, I think they will be able to get decent substitutions, and I think they're still in it. Uh, Pittsburgh has been strong recently, but you know we, they've. Uh, tended to get some injuries in right. the last few years. So, you know, we'll, we'll have to see. I, I think they're still in it. I think they obviously go down a level, but uh, they're still in contention there. You're on time with Chris Warner. Read him, PatriotsDaily.com. Also read his stuff as well on uh, BostonSportsMedia.com. Uh, Chris, to talk about the AFC East, the team that we both follow most closely, the Patriots. All teams in the AFC East are currently 3-3. Three and three, But my question to you is, are all 3-3 three and three teams created equally? I think they are not only because we're really going to see, uh, you know, with this Patriots-Jets game coming up, uh, and I think the early part of, of the second half of the season, who's who. Um, the Jets, you know, everybody was counting them out two weeks ago. They come out and absolutely do whatever they want against the Colts. I, I don't think they're going to be able to stop the Patriots' running game, and I think that's going to make a, a big difference. I do think the Patriots are the strongest in that division, but the margin is, is much less than I thought it was uh, about a month ago. Uh, uh, the Bills, yeah. you know, showing some good things, and, and Miami's got to be happy with Tannehill, but we, we know they're a few years away from doing anything. Uh, on the Patriots, Chris, uh, 
I look at their losses this season, and I'm especially going back to the game last Sunday against Seattle. It's been a continuation of a multi-year trend. When they don't score 30-plus points, they lose. They've scored 24 points in all three of their losses this season. Brady did not play a great game on Sunday, and we'll get more into Brady specifically in a moment, but, you know, he's 35. Shouldn't we expect that to happen? So for five years now, this team's defense has not been good enough to carry them to victory. The secondary has not gotten better for really the past four or five years. You can stretch it out that far. Um, so what's your read on the Patriots right now? It seems to me that this is really the same football team we've seen for the past handful of years. A team that if they don't score 30 plus points, uh, is going to have trouble winning football games. You know, it, it seems that way. Uh... This is a team that, uh, you know, going back several years, if they had any kind of a lead in the fourth quarter, they won games. I right. mean, that's just it. They almost never lost games in the fourth quarter. So to see them have a 13-point lead and, um, you know, other lead, lead against Baltimore and, and, and to lose those games, uh, it's it's really bad to watch as a fan. It's, it's intriguing as someone who follows the team because there's a lot to write about. But uh, I, I think it's really tough for people who are used to those early 2000 teams. I think it, it seems as though the secondary has not improved as much as required. I think that front seven is very tough, and I think they do a lot of good things. If you look at the fumbles that they were able to get uh, against Denver, that was uh, you know the front seven, uh, Rob Ninkovich specifically stripping the ball. Uh, on the strip of Peyton Manning, uh, Peyton Manning was looking for the tight end, and, and Gerard Mayo knocked him down, so he had no one to pass to. And that's that's front seven play. That's the pass rush, and that was supposed to help improve that secondary. But you know, the more I look at it, Alex, I just don't think these guys are that athletic. I just don't think they can they can handle uh, NFL receivers. I mean, you look at a guy like Braylon Edwards, who's been on 14 teams in the last six <laughs> years, and and you know he, he's looking like an all-star, and, and that's just, he out-muscled them, Golden Tate, you know, out-jumped them, it, it, it's just tough to watch, because you have guys, you know, maybe they're smart, maybe they know where they're supposed to be, but they just can't seem to make the plays that are necessary. I, I think, you know, we, we can point to, uh, you know, maybe kicking that field goal at, at the end of the first half. We can point to the interception, you know, that went through Danny Woodhead's hands, um, but I think if you have a 13-point lead starting out in the fourth quarter, uh, the blame goes to the defense there. And you look at those players, Chris. You mentioned they may, not, may just not be athletic enough. Look at Bill Belichick, the GM. Look, it's not like the Patriots haven't attempted to draft and develop linebackers over these past five years. I mean, I don't need to go through every draft from 07 through this past year. I mean, McCourty, Terrence Wheatley, Jonathan Wilhite, Razai Dowling, uh, Patrick Chung. I mean, on and on the list goes. It even scratched the surface there. And as you mentioned, these guys have not proven that they can play, and they haven't improved either. In a lot of cases, they've regressed. And you look at Belichick when he was defensive coordinator with the Giants. He inherited, he didn't select that defense. He had Lawrence Taylor already. Um, with the Patriots, nearly part of this millennium, he inherited a lot of Barce Parcells guys and brought in other players from the Jets from 01 through 04. You know, you look at Belichick's history as a GM, he's one of the greatest coaches of all time, but I think the fact that this defense hasn't improved now for a handful of years, especially the secondary, uh, doesn't it not question Belichick's ability as a general manager developing players in the secondary? I, I think he has had a rough few years. I think, uh, 
you know, if you look at back at the 2006 and 2007 drafts, there's not a lot there. Those were awful. You're correct. I mean, they've improved recently yeah. the drafts. I mean, let's I mean, let's give yeah. them credit. Gronkowski, Hernandez were great picks. Mayo was a great pick. Chandler Jones, Dante Hightower looked like good picks. Let's give him credit. He's had some good picks, but on the whole, you are correct. Especially 06, 07 were big misses in terms of drafts. Yeah, yeah, I think they they were, you know, but but overall, I think there just wasn't a ton of talent right. to, to pick from. But I think, you know, if you look at, say, last year, uh, everybody in the region was looking for some kind of a pass rusher. I was very high on Brooks Reed. Um, the year or two before that, I was very high on a guy named Connor Barwin. Both of those guys are playing for Houston. They're doing very well. Um, so I, I think they could, you know, use them instead of, uh, I think Darius Butler may have been chosen one of those years. So, you know, you're you're looking at um, someone who is very stubborn. And, and, you know, as we know, the Patriots have their own uh, scouts and, and do things independently of most of the rest of the league. And sometimes that works, and, and sometimes uh, it doesn't. I think recently they have improved that front seven. I think they're a lot more athletic and a lot tougher. Uh, but it, it just hasn't, uh, you know, reached the defensive back. And a, a point that you're making, Alex, I, I agree with, is that there hasn't been improvement. And I'm really curious about the coaching. You know, you look at a guy like McCordy, who, looked a year, he was just all over the place. He just seemed like a natural. And I wonder if there is a part of that that gets suppressed. Because even if you look at someone like Darius Butler, who had one or two interceptions, his rookie year, and he would he would come in as a you know defensive slot guy, as a nickel backer, a dime back, and and he seemed to have some talent there. Um, I believe now he's playing for the Colts, but I I'm just curious if there's something that happens in that locker room that takes away some of the I don't know if it would be ability to relax or maybe a freewheeling nature of it. I, I I'm not sure, but they certainly have not improved, and it's, it's hurt the team a lot. Or how about this, Chris? The secondary coach, or the cornerbacks coach, excuse me, is a guy named Josh Boyer. His previous place of employment, South Dakota School of Mining. Uh, First-year coach Brian Flores handles the safeties. You talk about coaching, it's not Eric Mangini, Romeo Cornell anymore, Rob Ryan on linebackers. It's Josh Boyer from the South Dakota School of Mining. Very good school, by the way. But I do um, do think that there might be, you know, too much on the plate of Belichick and some of the higher up coaches. Uh, you know, I understand the idea of bringing in uh, people who you trust, people who you like, parts of the system. But I, I just, uh, I think they've really got to, they've got to improve the secondary. And if it's going to come through coaching, it's going to come through coaching. But, but this team right now, it's really tough to look at some of the teams they would be facing in the playoffs and think that they would be able to hold on to a 14-point lead in the fourth quarter. You're attacking with Chris Warner, PatriotsDaily.com. Read him regularly. His stuff is posted on BostonSportsMedia.com. Final point here, Chris. We thank you again for coming on. Always enjoy the conversation. Uh, Robert Griffin III, Ryan Tannehill, Russell Wilson are 3-3. Three and three. Andrew Luck is 2-3, and three, but has had many moments of glory this season. Uh, is the success these rookies are having more due to their talents or to the fact that, frankly, it's easier to play quarterback in the NFL now than ever before. I I have to think it's their talent. I really do. I, I think uh, you're looking at an exceptional class. All the the names that you said, 
the surprise for me is Ryan Tannehill. I didn't think he would be able to translate his his success to the NFL, but you know he's he's done very well. He's worked hard. Um, you know he doesn't have an all-star slate of receivers there, but I, I think the fact that he has some ability, he's shown some good instincts. Uh, I, I think it's a, a testament to that entire class. Uh, you know, you look at and Andrew Luck, and, and he has done well, but then you look at last week, uh, and he doesn't do so well, and I think that's because of the competition. I think there is competition there. Uh, you know, we talk about the, the league going downhill a little bit overall, but uh, I, I do think that it's probably harder to be a quarterback now than ever in terms of the defensive uh, complications that, that they have to learn and become familiar with. So i got to give this class credit. All right. Chris Warner, PatriotsDaily.com. Read his stuff, BostonSportsMedia.com. Anywhere else the people can read you, Chris, if they're interested in uh, checking out your stuff on the Patriots in the NFL? Uh, right now it's BostonSportsMedia.com doing a, a monthly column with some, uh, some predictions and some uh, reviews of uh, how the season's gone so far. All right. Chris Warner, thanks as always for coming on the show, and we'll talk to you soon. Alex, thanks very much for having me. I know Chris and I, again, big thanks go out to Chris Warner for coming on the show. I know Chris and I spent some time there, considerable time on the Patriots, but as I said, they're 3-3. Three and three. All four teams in the AFC East are 3-3. Three and three. They play the Jets this week in a primetime matchup on CBS. It's a big story, and it's especially an interesting story to look at from a national perspective because... Bill Belichick is front and center. You know, the Patriots do not have that hierarchy of uh, of, uh, of decision makers like other NFL teams. Belichick's the head coach. He's the de facto defensive coordinator. Um, he's the general manager. He runs the draft board. He, include, he controls every facet of the Patriots organization from a football operations perspective. And you look at this defense, the secondary in particular, over the past five years, it has not improved. The players that have been drafted have not been good, largely, and those who have showed a glimmer of hope, like Devin McCourty in his rookie season, have regressed. So, you not picking the right players, and if the right players are selected, they're not improving. In fact, one can say they're regressing. And look at Bill Belichick's entire tenure as a, a head coach in this league, and we could do a whole show on this. He was a great defensive coordinator with the Giants, but he didn't acquire Lawrence Taylor. He didn't acquire those guys he had to work with. When he came aboard the Patriots in 2000, a lot of those guys on defense, Ty Law, William McGinnis, Teddy Bruschi, etc., those were Parcells guys. And a lot of the veterans who Belichick added to fill in the holes were Jets guys who were not developed by him. Those guys were also developed by Bill Parcells. Uh, Belichick's drafting record in New England more mirrors his drafting record in Cleveland in the mid to late 1990s which, despite what the NFL Network tells you, was not that good. Obviously, Belichick's one of the greatest coaches in the game today and one of the best coaches of all time, if not the best coach of all time. I'll be willing to argue that with anybody any day. But you look at his record as a GM, you look at his coaching staff and how he runs his organization, the fact that a lot of these young players chosen on defense have not improved. A lot of questions there. And once again, it looks if the Patriots don't score 30-plus points, they lose. They've scored 24 points in each of the three losses this season. It's all on one man, Tom Brady, who's 35. Can you expect a 35-year-old quarterback to lead your team to victory week in, week out, especially come the postseason? Hasn't worked for the Patriots for the past five years. And thus far this season at 3-3, three and three, it looks like a continuation of a lot of the negatives we've seen from this team recently. 
So I know there's a lot of you anti-Belichick people out there, and <laughs> you're probably a little giddy this week. Although my prediction for Patriots-Jets, Pats by 20-plus points this week. Yeah, I think Rex Ryan and the Jets get run out of Foxborough. Anyway, second down segment. We look at the biggest off-field stories of the week. Uh, quickly, Bounty Gate continues. Jonathan Vilma and others can play this week. They have request requested Roger Goodell is absent from these proceedings. A judge wants to see more evidence from the NFL for the bounty case, and it begs the point. Legally, it's difficult to absolutely prove a lot of these things. I mean, legally, O.J. Simpson is not guilty. And notice the terminology is not guilty. It isn't innocent. You're either guilty or not guilty in a court of law. It's very difficult to absolutely prove these things. And the NFL may be finding that here in the bounty case. But on to the big off-field stories of the week. The first one is the Cleveland Browns have a new owner, businessman, business tycoon, if you will. Jimmy Haslam has purchased the team. He's bringing aboard former Eagles president Joe Banner as a part of his ownership group. This means that Mike Holmgren is out as Browns president, a role he has been in the past couple of seasons. Disappointing results. Um, but it was a very tough situation for Holmgren. Holmgren, excuse me, didn't have a lot of resources to work with. Uh, he pretty much served as Randy Lerner's surrogate. Uh, Randy Lerner was not interested in attending NFL board meetings. He wasn't interested in being involved in the day-to-day -day operations of the franchise. He owns a soccer team across the pond. Uh, he's far more interested in soccer. He purchased a soccer team in 2006, I believe it was. Um, so Mike Holmgren wasn't just there with the Browns to focus on improving the football operations. Uh, he had to be basically the de facto owner since Randy, Randy Lerner hired him to be his surrogate of sorts. So Holmgren didn't do much in his tenure as Browns president. Let's be frank about it. But he also didn't have a lot to work with necessarily and certainly was not in the best of conditions. Um, the one stamp draft pick, if you will, of the Holmgren era. Well, I think there's a couple of them. It's selecting Trent Richardson in the first round this past year, a rare move in today's NFL to select a running back with a top five pick. That's number one. And number two has to be the quarterback choice in 2010, Colt McCoy. Jury's still out on Richardson's obvious, on Richardson, obviously, and I think the jury has decided on Colt McCoy. That was a failure. Uh, the highlight of the Holmgren era was maybe a regular season victory against New England uh, three years ago. But you look at the Browns. Since they moved back to Cleveland in 1999, they've only made the playoffs once, 2002. They blew a late lead in the second half of that game to Pittsburgh. Speaking of the Steelers, they lost to Pittsburgh 51 to nothing on opening night, <laughs> their first ever game back in Cleveland. A deep-pocketed Al Werner brought the team back, but he passed away in 2002. His son, Randy, never held a real interest in American football. After making the playoffs in 2002, they posted double-digit losing seasons in 2003 and 2004. So it's been an era of futility for the Browns in Cleveland. We spoke about the Kansas City Chiefs and the futility they've suffered under Scott Pioli. Well, for the Browns, it's been a decade plus, going on close to 15 years now of futility since moving back to Cleveland. And what's the biggest reason for this futility? As it's in the opening of the show today, two simple letters, Q and B. Put it together, you get QB, which of course is the abbreviation for quarterback. Now the Browns did pass on Ben Roethlisberger in 2004. I'm sure they are still kicking themselves for that to this day. You look at the quarterbacks that have started opening day for the Browns. 
Ready from their first season to this past year, 2012. Ty Detmer was the opening day starter for the Browns in their first season. Then we had Tim Couch. Tim Couch again. Kelly Holcomb. Kelly Holcomb. Jeff Garcia. Trent Dilfer. Charlie Fry. Charlie Fry. Then Derek Anderson. And this year, the Browns actually had four quarterbacks. Derek Anderson, Brady Quinn, Ken Dorsey, and Bruce Gronkowski all received playing time. And in Quinn and Dorsey's case, significant playing time for the Browns that season when they started Derek Anderson. I believe that was 08. 2009 was Brady Quinn. 2010 was Colt McCoy as a rookie. He gave way to Jake DeLome and Seneca Wallace. 2011 was Colt McCoy. One last try. Did not work. In 2012, of course, this past season has been 28-year-old rookie Brandon Whedon. But my goodness, just take a second to digest that list of quarterbacks. And I just pretty much named opening day quarterbacks. I didn't name every quarterback to ever throw a pass for the Browns, or we'd be here all day. I only listed uh, four quarterbacks in 08, three in 2010, 2011, because, I mean, it's notable when a team has four quarterbacks and three quarterbacks who play significant time. That's very notable. Uh, you know, if you have three quarterbacks, you don't have a quarterback. Or in the Browns' case, if you have four quarterbacks, you don't have a quarterback. Uh, just look at that list. Tim Couch. Kelly Holcomb, Charlie Fry, Derek Anderson, then Brady Quinn, Colt McCoy, and now Brandon Whedon. Brandon Whedon is the third consecutive quote-unquote rookie quarterback to be the next great hope for Cleveland Browns fans and Cleveland sports fans. Imagine that. Ay, ay, ay. And I'm rooting for the Cleveland fans, I am. <laughs> Think life is bad, he could always be a Cleveland sports fan. But really, what's the number one reason why the Browns have been so futile, have, 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 have excuse me, uh, been so horrific, have expressed, have played, you know, have, have represented futility since they went to Cleveland in 1999? The lack of a quarterback. It's as simple as that. And you look at the Browns coaches, they've had quite a few. Chris Palmer, Butch Davis, Terry Robisky as an interim guy, then Romeo Cornell, Eric Mangini, two colossal failures, especially Mangini, and now Pat Shermore. But, the Raiders have had a more uh, tenuous coaching carousel than the Browns have over the past 10 to 12 years. It's been the coaches, yeah, but it's mostly been the quarterbacks for Cleveland. And in today's NFL, without a quarterback, without any semblance of a reliable starting quarterback, you are not going to win, as the Cleveland Browns have learned. Now, the Eagles do have a quarterback in Michael Vick. However, Michael Vick and the Eagles are currently 3-3 three and three on the season. They have lost two consecutive games to Pittsburgh and Detroit. This week is their off week, and as some expected, the Eagles have made a major change to the coaching staff. They have fired defensive coordinator Juan Castillo, who of course was promoted to defensive coordinator last season. Castillo was a former offensive line coach with the Eagles. And Todd Bowles is a new defensive coordinator in Philadelphia, Bowles, of course, has been linked to head coaching jobs in the past. He was the Dolphins' interim coach for the final few games last season. And some have speculated that Todd Bowles could be Andy Reid's replacement if Andy Reid is fired sometime this season or immediately following this season. And those of you who listen to the show know I am not high on the Eagles, have never been high on the Eagles, even after their win against the Giants a couple weeks ago. They're 3-3 three and three now. They've lost two straight. Not the start they were looking for after last season's colossal failure. And, you know, this is a cliche, but it applies perfectly to the Eagles. The individuals 
are greater than the sum of the parts. And that is not the formula for a winning team in a team sport. Of course, you want the sum of the parts to be greater than the individuals. But for the Eagles, you look at that defense. Namdi Asamoah on one end. Dominic Rogers-Cromartie on the other end. A guy like Jason Babin up front as a defensive end, rushing the quarterback. D'Amico Ryans acquired as a middle linebacker. On offense, the playmakers, Michael Vick with Sean McCoy, who, by the way, only rushed for, I believe, 29 yards on Sunday against Detroit. Jeremy Macklin, Brent Selleck, Deshaun Jackson, he of the big contract extension. Eagles have a lot of talent, man, especially in the kill positions, skill positions on both offense and defense. But for the second consecutive season, it looks like it is not working. And the Eagles led the Lions by 10 points with five minutes to go on Sunday and lost the game in overtime. The cornerbacks couldn't cover. cover. I mean, Tony, she, uh, Tony Scheffler, the backup tight end to Brandon Pettigrew, beat the Eagles secondary down the field for 50-plus yards. There's a talent of that game. Tony Scheffler is burning, Brown, is burning Eagles cornerbacks in safeties. Tony Scheffler is letting that secondary up. Juan Castillo was not the scapegoat. He's a former offensive line coach. Many questioned, and I think rightfully so, the decision to name defensive coordinator before last season. Uh, I don't think Juan Castillo was ever right for the job, and I credit the Eagles for making that shift. Better late than never. But ultimately, this mix just isn't working. And I don't follow the team on a daily basis, but from my perspective, it's a mix of bad guys in there. And those of you who follow the Eagles more close than I do, feel free to email me, write a comment on the show page. But do I read it wrong? A team underachieved so horribly last season, underachieving again through the first six games this season. Every week, it's a different thing. One week, Mike Vick can't get off the ground because the offensive line can't block anybody. The next week, the defense has a 10-point lead with five minutes to go against the Detroit Lions, who have had their own share of struggles this season. And they wind up losing in overtime, giving up, what was it, 13 unanswered points? It looks like the Eagles, it looks as if the Eagles have a bad mix of guys in there, both on offense and defense. They've tuned out Andy Reid. They need a new voice. They need a new mix of players. A rough comparison for the Eagles is the Boston Red Sox of 2011 and this past year, 2012. For whatever reason, the Red Sox these past two seasons have been far better on paper than they were on the field. And it's the Boston media market, it's the baseball team, there's a culture here in Boston to inundate us with tabloid-like headlines surrounding the baseball team, so we found out a lot of dirt on these guys, but from chicken and beer in 2011 to trying to, uh, you know, um, on, on, on acting insubordinate this year under Bobby Valentine, and Bobby Valentine had every reason to fail, and he took every reason to fail here and failed spectacularly with the Red Sox, adding Bobby Vita mix was like pouring gasoline on the fire, but... My point is, the Red Sox for these past two years were far better on paper than they were on the field. There was an intangible aspect that was missing from the perpetual underachieving core of players that are now gone largely. Adrian Gonzalez, Carl Crawford, Josh Beckett were traded along with their $250 million contracts to the Dodgers this past August. The Red Sox blew it up this year to an extent, and they have been searching for a new manager now. They're third in three years. Do the Eagles need to go through a bit of a similar shakeup on the field? They need a new coach in Andy Reid who's been there for there for a very long time. Had a lot of great success, but he had a lot of his successes with a totally different group. And this group that's currently in there didn't respond to him last year. 
doesn't seem to be responding to him at all this year. Every week, it's a different thing. Every week, there's a different scapegoat. It didn't work with the Eagles last year with this group of players, with this coach, and it's not working thus far this year. They're 3-3 three and three after six games. Juan Castillo was out. That's the first change of many that need to be made with the Eagles. And the next big one that may need to be made in regards to the coaching staff is Andy Reid. Heading on to our third down segment, it's the Big Up Slowdown segment. I take a debate that has been uh, festering in NFL circles over the past week, and I give my stamp of approval on it by saying Big Up, yep, that statement is correct, or my disapproval by saying Slow Down. Statement number one, the Denver Broncos scored 35 unanswered points to beat down the Chargers on Monday Night Football this week, but Norv Turner, not Peyton Manning, is more responsible for the Denver comeback victory. Um, I'll say big up here. Yep. First of all, Peyton Manning was terrific at the end of that game. He had 13 consecutive completions. He was in firm command of that offense. I told you it would take a couple weeks for the Broncos and Peyton Manning to become fully acclimated to each other, but it seems they have now. I mean, the way Peyton Manning, with the, 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 the precision in which he was operating with at the end of that game in the second half on Monday night, a joy to watch as a football viewer. Not as a fan, not as a bite. No, as a viewer, it was a joy to watch. John Gruden went nuts up there in the broadcast booth, and he had, he had every right to go nuts. Peyton Manning looked firmly in command of that Broncos offense in the second half of that game. But let's also remember, Manning did throw three touchdown passes. That last one to Brandon Stokely was a thing of beauty. The Manning to Stokely connection back from Indy. But let's also remember... The Broncos had 14 points off turnovers. Tony Carter had an interception. Oz returned a fumble for a touchdown. Chris Harris had a couple picks. Returned one of them for a touchdown as well. I say the Chargers are slightly more responsible here because under no way should they have blown a 24-0 lead. Under no way does any football team worth a damn, any football team with a soul, allow 35 unanswered points to a divisional rival like that in the second half. North Turner is a bad, bad football coach. It's amazing to me that he still has the job there in San Diego. They all do. A.J. Smith, North Turner, they all do. And I mentioned A.J. Smith because the roster has declined over the past couple years. That defense, no more Sean Merriman, no more Igor Olshansky, no more a lot of those hard-hitting defensive linemen, linebackers. The defense has taken a step back personnel-wise. And the offense has too. No more LT, Michael Turner, Darren Sproles, no more Vincent Jackson. Malcolm Floyd's been out with an injury. Antonio Gates is in great decline, etc. Yes, Peyton Manning and the Broncos deserve a lot of credit for coming back to win. But I say the person who deserves a little more credit is North Turner. For just being North Turner. And continuing to lead the Chargers into a mass, mass, mass downward spiral. It's just North being North. No football team worth a damn. Surrenders 35 unanswered points in the second half to divisional rival like the Chargers did to the Broncos this Monday night. Although, again, props to Peyton Manning. The precision in which he operated with it at the end of that game, a thing of beauty. He may not be 100% back, but it certainly seems to me Peyton Manning is 80-85% to 85% back after his performance Monday night. And as I've said all season, if Peyton Manning is 80-85% to 85% back, that's more than good enough for the Broncos to capture the AFC West title. Now, Chris Warner and I briefly discussed the Ravens' injuries. Ladarius Webb lost for the season. Ray Lewis lost for the year as well. 
Big up or slow down these injuries will sink the Ravens. It's a very tough question. But I'm going to be bold here. Because that's what we do. And I say big up. Ultimately, it, they will cost the Ravens big time this season. Now, from a production standpoint, one can say that Jamal McLean and Danelle Ellerby can replace Ray Lewis's production. From a production standpoint, you can make that argument. But then I could counter and say, Ray Lewis, though he's regressed as a player, his leadership abilities will still be missed. And I know he'll still be on the sidelines, just as Terrell Suggs has been on the sidelines. I know that means Ray Lewis will still be around to give us impassioned pregame speech, but it's just not the same when Ray Lewis is not out there playing every single down or close to every single down on defense. So, yeah, Ellerby, Paul Kruger, uh, McLean, these guys, from a purely production standpoint, yeah, can maybe make up for Ray Lewis and then some this season when given more snaps. But Ray Lewis's readership abilities, abilities will greatly be missed on that defense. As far as Ladarius Webb goes, he's a huge loss. He has developed into the number one corner the Ravens hoped he would. And that's number one corner that, frankly, the Ravens needed because Ed Reed is, still, is not getting any younger there as a safety. The Ravens' cornerback depth remains a bit of a weak point for them. The Ravens can no longer pride themselves on defense. They should still be a league average defense, but in the past they've needed to be better than league average. Paging Joe Flacco, paging Joe Flacco, this is the opportunity you have been waiting for. You whine and moan and complain about how you're not considered an elite quarterback? Well, here's your chance now. No Ray Lewis, no Terrell Suggs, no Ladarius Webb, Ed Reed's not getting any younger. Joe, this is now your team. What are you going to do? My prediction, Joe Flacco does not lead the Ravens to the promised land. He doesn't even come close because Joe Flacco at his core is a slow afoot, mediocre quarterback. Yep. And this is now his team. The ball will be in his hands 30, 35 times per game in a lot of cases. And he'll have every opportunity to fail. And he'll take you up on that more times than he doesn't. Big up, oh, Pete Carroll and the Seattle Seahawks are now 4-2. and two. They beat the Patriots last week in Seattle. The 12th man up there in full force. Pete Carroll, is he a good football coach? Big down, big up or slow down? I'm getting all mixed up here because I can't wait to tell you slow down. Pete Carroll is not a good head coach. Now notice I said the words head coach. Pete Carroll is a good defensive coach, a very good defensive coach. He's proven in the NFL, in college, he can coach the hell out of a defense. And you look at a lot of his personnel decisions on defense with the Seahawks, drafting Roger Sherman, who's developed into a great young corner, uh, Earl Thomas at safety, uh, the pass rushers the Seahawks have developed, Bruce Irving this year, draft pick, etc. Uh, Pete Carroll is a very good defensive coach, but he's not a good head coach. The Seahawks... These past two years have been 7-9 and nine and 7-9. and nine. That's sub-500, folks. And they've played in the NFC West, so they made the playoffs one of those years, and they beat New Orleans one of those games, which they had home field, because, of course, Seattle won its division, and that's how home field works. I understand that. But 7-9, and 7-9. Hmm. Great? I don't think so. Pete Carroll took over a Super Bowl-caliber Patriot team in 1997. They went to the Super Bowl the year prior in 96 under Parcells. And they spiraled to be a mediocre at best football team in 1999. Carroll's final year in New England, they went 8-8. Eight eight. 
The players didn't respect him. It was a total mess in terms of a locker room, a club, a, a culture, guys like Brewski, McGinnis. Uh, a lot of these guys were thought to be perpetual underachievers under Pete Carroll. Ty Law, uh, they couldn't stay out of the trainer's room. Then Bill Belichick comes, and it all changes in New England. So Pete Carroll took over a Super Bowl. Drew Bredsoe regressed as a quarterback under Carroll. He was knocking on the door of elite status in 1996. The Patriots went to the Super Bowl. And Pete Carroll had him in the prime of his career in the late 1990s. And by the time Carroll left, the Patriot organization was a mess, a mediocre mess. They were 8-8 eight eight in his final year in 1999 with a number of off-field issues, insubordination, players not respecting the coach, etc. A dysfunctional organization, no real hierarchy. Carroll left the Patriots, undoubtedly, in a far worse position than he took them over in. Oh, but wait a minute, Alex. Wait a minute. Okay. Pete Carroll didn't work with the Jets. He didn't work with the Patriots. All right, he's been okay in Seattle, two seven to nine seasons. I got you there. But USC, come on, man. USC, how can you dispute his success in the college ranks? Well, I'm not going to dispute his success, but I'll say this. In 2004, USC won the national championship. And they did so with a roster featuring Reggie Bush, Matt Weiner, and Clay Matthews. 53 NFL players came from that 2004 USC team. Yep, 53 players. You, yes, you out there in your cubicle. You could have gone out there and coached that team with a Pac-10 schedule, mind you, to an undefeated record and a BCS bowl game. In 2002, Pete Carroll had 45 NFL players on his roster at USC with a Pac-10 schedule. Pete Carroll was dominant in college with USC because he had far better players than anybody else. Now I understand part of the game in college is recruiting, and Pete Carroll is a great recruiter. But the question wasn't whether or not he's a great recruiter. The question was whether or not he's a great football coach, head football coach. I just don't think he is. And once the NCAA began to investigate, Carroll fled. Oh, yeah, these NFL jobs have been offered to me the past couple years. Oh, yeah, uh, I'm going to take Seattle. I'm really jacked and pumped about this opportunity. Short while later, Reggie Bush stripped of the Heisman. USC under investigation. Coincidence? I think not. And I don't blame Pete Carroll for playing dirty. You have to play dirty in major Division I athletics. I don't blame Pete Carroll for paying. You got to pay. But he's a fraud. He's as dirty as anybody else. Not this happy-go-lucky, I'm jacked and pumped guy that he's perceived to be. And Pete Carroll, this week especially, is perceived to be a good, if not a damn good, head football coach. And I am here to tell you that is false. Incredibly false. Moving on, closing out the show here, the fourth down segment, it's the Reamer rant talking about the Dallas Cowboys, who lost to Joe Flacco and the Ravens 31-29 last week after they continually failed to be able to get a play-in during the game's waning moments. In their second-to-last drive, they had communication troubles, but Tony Romo found Des Bryant for a touchdown in the end zone. But then in the final drive, Cowboys had 20 seconds or so remaining, and they just couldn't get a play-in. They could not do it. The communication was awful. The epitome of bad late game management. The Cowboys are now two and three, and they really could easily be uh, one and three. They squeaked by uh, two and four, excuse me, or one and four. I'm sorry, my math is all screwed up. They could easily just only have one one. They're ba barely squeaked by Tampa Bay in week two. 
Now, they played Carolina this week, and the Panthers have had a rough season. Cam Newton's had a rough year. He'll be faced with DeMarcus Ware, and, his, and uh, Cam Newton may turn the ball over quite a bit on Sunday. And the Cowboys may win. And then we'll hear on SportsCenter, the Cowboys are back. They are back. The Dallas Cowboys, a force to be reckoned with. And I'm here to tell you that is not true. The Cowboys have not been a force to be reckoned with. They have not been, quote-unquote, back in over 10 years. Did you know that the Dallas Cowboys have only won one that's right, one playoff game since 1998. One playoff victory since 1998. One. And they're the team who, after every win, leads Sports Center every Monday morning. Tony Romo is a mediocre quarterback at best in December, and most certainly in January. The Cowboys last year were a 500 team, and that's what they project to be this season, a 500 team. Now, in baseball, for example, the Yankees steal all the headlines, right? The Tigers are currently up in that series, but you wouldn't know it. You read the game reports, you don't read a peep about the Tigers. It's all about the Yankees and A-Rod struggles and Cano and the offense and aptitude, and it's all about the Yankees. But at least it's understandable there because the Yankees have made the playoffs every year except one since 1996 and have won five World Series in that time span. The Cowboys, for comparison's sake, since 1996, have won only two playoff rounds and, of course, zero Super Bowls and only one playoff win since 1998. The franchises aren't comparable, but yet the attention they receive from the mainstream media is comparable. Why? I do not know. America's team. Yeah, the Cowboys were America's team in 1994. It's not 1994. It's 2012. Hell, in 2004, it was absurd that the Cowboys were considered America's team. And eight years later, it's even more absurd. One playoff victory. One since 1998. And this is the team we get all obsessed over each and every season. After everyone, oh, the Cowboys are back. Nope, they are not back. They are a 500 football team. And 500 football teams, as far as I'm concerned, are not that interesting. I don't find the Cowboys all that interesting, and you shouldn't either. There's nothing dramatic about it. They've been mediocre at best for 12 to 15 for, for 12 to 15 years. There's nothing all that interesting about mediocrity, even if it does occur in the Big D. Thank you for tuning in to a spirited edition of the Football Nation Today podcast with yours truly, Alex Reamer. As always, feel free to shoot me a line via email. areamer at bu.edu is my email address. Also, feel free to drop me a line on Twitter. My Twitter name is at AlexReamer1. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the rest of your crisp October week. Enjoy the foliage if you're in a foliage area. That's another thing I never really became enamored with foliage, but that's another story for another day. So long, everybody. Enjoy the rest of your week. Enjoy your weekend. Talk to you next on Football Nation Today next Wednesday.